Welcome back, everyone, to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm still Daniel Ennis, and I'm still here with co-hosts Barry Casson and Steph Woye. How are you both? Hey, Denny. Boy, guys, I'm I'm thrilled to be back. <laughs> happy Good. New Year. Happy, happy New, New Year, Year to everybody. Both, yeah. yeah. And boy, am I ever happy Thomas is here. Yeah. So huge, huge get for us is Thomas Rostin, one of the original inventors of this show. He is a cardiac genetics fellow at Harvard Medical School and part of the CIP program here at UBC. Thomas, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much, everybody, and thanks for having me back. It's uh, it's great to be able to present another case here. Why don't you kick us off, and we're going <laughs> to... I'm sure this is going to blow our minds. And, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I think it's a little different than uh, what you guys normally discuss and what our audience normally hears. So uh, I'm looking forward to... Uh, to testing the uh, the edges of your knowledge. Uh, so oh, I'm actually going to really start by testing the edges of your knowledge by giving you a patient who's actually a child. Oh, and this story oh, takes place over many, many years. So this is a 12-year-old girl who actually presents to a dermatologist for a dermatologic assessment. She has developed probably uh, ever since she was a child, maybe even an infant, issues with her scalp where she gets a very itchy, dry scalp that cracks, and it sometimes bleeds. It's mostly on the uh, occipital area, um, and she has quite dense, woolly hair as well um, that's thick and matted. And uh, she also says that she has problems with uh, psoriasis on her hands and her feet. Because there's no sense that there's an indication for any blood work, uh, she doesn't undergo any blood work. She just goes to see a dermatologist. And the dermatologist essentially does a full review of systems, uh, which is negative. And because this is a relatively long time ago, I don't know exactly what was asked, but nothing particular came out. Her growth and development across her whole life has otherwise been completely normal. She's uh, healthy, active, does well in school, uh, no issues whatsoever otherwise. Uh, the examination does confirm that she does seem to have um, problems with her scalp where she does have a lot of cracking, a lot of scaling, and uh, also on the palms of her hands, she has something what's similar to look to, to the appearance of her scalp where her hands are quite cracked and coarse uh, and does have some fissures that bleed, and her nails are quite brittle as well. And uh, the dermatologist, not surprisingly, uh, because this is usually what happens, decides to do a punch biopsy. And so she does a punch biopsy of the scalp. And the punch biopsy is consistent with psoriasis. So I'm going to stop early in the case at this point, just to see if anybody has any thoughts about what I've said so far. I imagine not really, since it's a pediatric presentation of a dermatologic condition that hasn't even been defined by biopsy. But is anyone thinking anything particular at this point or want to do anything beyond what the dermatologist has already done? So just a question, is, is she 12 years old that you're describing now, or is she, she, the, she developed this and now she's older than 12? She is older than 12 in the present day, much older than 12. But, but this, this presentation was when she was 12, is that correct? Yeah, this is really her first ever contact with the medical system outside, obviously, her birth. So I'm actually taking you guys back to the first time, essentially, in her life she's seen a doctor. It's on your mind, Barry. Uh, no, no, nothing. It's, uh, I mean, if, if this had developed, uh, you know, in her adult life and, uh, I would have thought of a couple of things, but, uh, I mean, I probably wouldn't question the diagnosis of psoriasis. I'd wonder about just because you're presenting an interesting case, I probably would think about a couple of other things, but at this point, I think I would have just accepted that she had a punch biopsy that was compatible with psoriasis. Hmm. What about you, Steph? I don't know. You know, it's hard for when I hear when I hear any of these like first little snippets from a case, it's hard for me to separate the fact that it's being told to me by a cardiac genetics fellow, you know? <laughs> so, so, so all I'm doing is I'm trying to think about, you know, why is this interesting to Thomas? So this is going to turn out to be a, a cardiac condition of some kind. And so I'm what I would be doing I mean, I don't know. So I don't have I don't have any thoughts right now. Like yeah, I, I, think that's I would be. I'm thinking about genetic syndrome, ge like cardiac genetic syndromes, because that's what Thomas is into. <laughs> and then and then cardiac genetic syndromes with with um, skin manifestations, derm, derm manifestations. And so th that's that's all I'm you know 
it's not useful right now, but that's what I'm thinking. Sure, sure. So, so about the psoriasis, so it sounds like it's affecting common places for psoriasis. So there's nothing particularly weird about the description you've given. The cracking um, component suggests like maybe there, like it's um, th- there's thickening of the skin. So either that can be from like secondary lichenification, like scratching, but usually psoriasis isn't so much itchy, or maybe there's like a keratoderma component to it. Um, but occipital area is common. So, you know, when you get a punch biopsy of something you think is psoriasis, um, oftentimes it's described as psoriasiform or psoriaform. And there is a differential for that that I would absolutely need to ask a dermatologist about. Like, I don't know that off the top. The only thing that, you know, you're, <laughs> Thomas, you, you said woolly hair. And that took me back to my pediatrics rotation because when I showed up on um, my pediatrics rotation for the first time, I was kind of frazzled and I had longer, puffier hair. And someone said, hey, that guy has a woolly hair syndrome. And I thought he was just (laughs) being a chump, but that actually is a syndrome. (laughs) Like there is a woolly hair syndrome. I don't know anything about it, but uh, that's all that came to mind. So I know that woolly hair is like, it's a thing. It's a real, it's a real, like, it, it has a meaning within pediatrics and genetics. And that's all I know. Yeah. So I think I thought, uh, I thought you told me when you showed up on your peds rotation, they called you a funny looking kid. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they called me lots of stuff. <laughs> sticks and stones, Danny, sticks and stones. Yeah. That's um, right. <laughs> Show now. How many of them have a podcast? <laughs> so I have to say, uh, I think all of you have very perceptive comments at this point, and I think it's impossible to really take us ourselves back to this time because, for one thing, it's almost you know 20 years ago in real time, but also because it's really hard to remain agnostic to the fact that I am a cardiac genetics fellow and use certain terms that trigger ideas in people's heads. But you know, I think it's fair to say there's nothing in particular about this presentation that would want you to would make would entice you to go further. The only thing is is that she was provided a psoriasis shampoo that had no benefit whatsoever. She also didn't have any blood work. I don't know, um, you know, in pediatrics it's probably harder to get blood work and things like that, but you know, maybe that could provide some potential insights. And then I think the last thing is the decision to do a biopsy for psoriasis to me is I don't know very much about that, but there I suspect back then when they were working her up there must have been some confusion about the diagnosis in order for someone to be willing to do a skin biopsy in a young person because it really is often a clinical diagnosis and maybe Danny can correct me if I'm wrong but I really you know when it's classic cases of psoriasis we usually don't do biopsies. I know I I think it's very much a clinical diagnosis he told us there's brittle nails um so um they would probably look for like the oil drop like the onycholysis the pitting um, would be typical findings to, to go along with that. And I think you would make a clinical diagnosis and be pretty happy with that. So it often doesn't require a biopsy. I, I wonder like the reason that they did a biopsy and specifically a scalp biopsy, like this person had psoriasis elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So why the scalp? That like There must have been something a little bit unusual about the pattern of psoriasis that led that um, dermatologist to say like it's a bit atypical it is psoriasis but like eh, it's, it's a bit funky um, and so just that history at least triggers me to think this may be like psoriasis um, as part of something else um, yeah. so I, I would just lie that in the back of my head you know the other thing when i so, you know we, we we deal with tricky cases here on the podcast but also in real life you know barry and i and i'm sure you do both of you see tricky cases and often when i'm doing almost like a a diagnostics or a forensics you know of of all the other things that have happened to this person before they come and see me i pay attention to these things like how like what was the confidence in that diagnosis of psoriasis probably not very high right like if the dermatologist takes more than about 20 seconds to make your diagnosis then then they're (laughs) This is this is a known thing. This isn't me being like disparaging of dermatologists. Their accuracy is much much higher if they can make the diagnosis right away. So when they start in a case like this, moving to a scalp biopsy, and then you have had this other feature that they treated the patient for psoriasis and the patient did not improve. Well, I'm definitely tagging that as like, okay, this was probably not psoriasis. Um, so so I'd also be thinking about what things in kids mimic psoriasis you know so these these are the clues that that we can then use to say to, to pick out the parts that are going to end up being salient mm-hmm. so let me ask danny does keratoderma blenerogicum affect the scalp uh, i'm not aware of that i 
kind of thought of it as like a hands and feet phenomenon yeah that can happen in psoriasis or perineoplastic syndrome or reactive arthritis uh, yeah i'm not aware of that it's just uh yeah okay well thomas now you've enticed us to discuss something we know nothing about at length to discuss a concept then a word then a biopsy and we're back at it yeah so 10 minutes in, and I thought this whole case would only last 10 minutes, but uh, <laughs> we, we do a good job of uh, debating what I think at the time was probably, you know, a, a consult that lasted maybe 20 minutes. And I'm not sure that anyone really questioned the diagnosis, but I think all the points to raised are excellent. The only one thing I will say is that I should have been specific. And the psoriasis that was diagnosed is actually on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, which is... I, my understanding is a relatively strange place to get psoriasis. Um, I, I think that there is there is such thing as palmoplantar psoriasis, mm-hmm. and and I I you know the differential for that is it just a variant of psoriasis or is it um, also as part of other diseases that I would have to look into. Yeah. Um, okay. But but the scalp psoriasis sounds like scalp psoriasis. So let me ask you, this is before we move on, and we, since we're beating this to death, and uh, it's just thoughts are crossing my mind, nothing to do with cardiac genetics at all. But since psoriasis is a complication of HIV or an association, do children develop psoriasis if they have HIV when they're born? Oh, boy. I don't I hope know. you're not asking me. Really? I have no idea. Well, I, no, it's, 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 it's a rhetorical question, maybe, if, unless, unless you, any of you know the answer, because I don't. And for me, it's just me asking me, but I don't, I don't know. It's just, I was just thinking of systemic diseases that might have this aspect. Yeah. I think you, you I think start it, to get psoriasis as HIV, like as your like CD counts start to get low, as your lymphocytes lymphocyte start, start to get low. And then as you reconstitute, you get some of the more seropositive diseases like rheumatoid, lupus, um, et cetera. So it is part of the spectrum, as you mentioned. But, uh, you know, I, I think it would depend on stage of, of HIV. Right. Okay. So I think at this point, there's my sense from you guys is there's two things. One is whether or not the diagnosis is actually psoriasis. But the other is if the diagnosis is indeed psoriasis. Why am I presenting somebody who has psoriasis who's 12 years old? Because that doesn't seem particularly interesting. So I think both are good questions, and it'll become obvious in a sec. So I'm now going to fast forward. Thank you for the confidence in us. Uh, So I'll I'll just say one other thing, which I forgot to say, uh, which is that her skin biopsy on her scalp never really healed properly. So she developed some keloid from it. Um, It constantly flaked and bled on and off. Uh, and that was considered to be quite a big nuisance for her. And as I said, the psoriasis shampoo she was given was never really very effective, but she just learned to live with it and kind of moved on. So I'm going to fast forward now by 12 years. And at this point, I'm actually going to tell you about her sister, who is now age 26. And she presents the emergency department with an episode of near syncope. So she's just walking down the road briskly, nothing particularly uh, interesting going on. Normal day, she's not dehydrated. There's no obvious vasovagal triggers, and she begins to feel very lightheaded and dizzy. She develops palpitations and a sense of doom, uh, sits down, and then within maybe 10 seconds, it completely resolves. Uh, The event was unwitnessed, and she didn't think much of it, and she didn't seek any treatment or diagnosis. But the similar thing kind of recurred about a month later, and so she was referred to a cardiologist and had a resting ECG done. And the resting ECG showed sinus rhythm uh, with inferior Q waves and borderline low voltage. And because of the potential arrhythmic presentation, the cardiologist arranges for a Holter monitor. And within 24 hours of wearing the monitor, she develops sustained ventricular tachycardia. And she was symptomatic during it with the same type of uh, presyncope. So at this point, I'm going to stop again and... I'm, I, I think Steph already, you know, surmised that this is going to have some relation to cardiac genetics, which it does. But I'm just wondering if anybody has any particular thoughts at this point about what might be going on now that we know this and how we go about thinking about this patient and her sister. Where are they from? They're, they're of um, white European ancestry on both sides of the family. No known consanguinity, which is obviously when your uh, parents are, bi- are are blood relations of one another. That that feels a little nonspecific. It, like, is there, you know, anything about that ethnic origin that, like, digging deeper into it? Any like, I don't know, 
any religious ethnicity or anything other than European or like pretty, pretty generic background? Yeah. So I think those are good questions. And Steph points out, you know, I think family history is super important here. So I think what I would say is whenever you're dealing with a young person with a problem you don't expect to see, like sustained VT or any problem really for that matter, I think it really, we're not as internist that good at taking a really good family history because we so often deal with people of, with advanced age and acquired diseases, but a really good family history can actually start to create patterns that you wouldn't have already, wouldn't have otherwise recognized. So part of a good family history is really asking around those issues that Danny points out. So I'm sure you're getting this, Danny, but one, I mean, important question is, um, you know, in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, there are very specific founder uh, mutations and variants for various disease. Uh, Tay-Sachs is obviously one of the classic ones. Even in, for example, in Europe, it, Mennonite founder mutations, there's very specific diseases that those population of individuals can get. Uh, white Europeans, you think of things like cystic fibrosis. So I think questions around ethnic background of our patients who are young with rare problems is a really good place to start. Yeah. So the so the things that uh, that intrigued me, uh, aside from the, I mean, doing the proper history is the fact that uh, in this young woman, independent of the VTAC, she's got an abnormal ECG with Q waves um, and uh, low voltage. So I have to admit that those were both surprises to me in this, I guess, 20 some year old woman. Yeah, definitely. So there's a broad differential for low voltage, but uh, I think in the setting and Q waves, but in the setting of her having ventricular tachycardia, you really have to wonder if there's some underlying cardiomyopathy cardiomyopathic process there. Right. Is there anything particular that um, you guys would like to know about the sustained VT that might help you in your differential diagnosis? I'll, uh, I'll defer to Steph. <laughs> can, can you just, can you describe the ECG again for me? Sure. So the rest ECG shows sinus rhythm, inferior pathologic Q waves, and borderline low voltage. Did she have any epsilon waves? No. And so what's what the, was she what, doing? What you're get, so I guess we should maybe just stop. And so what you're getting at is, could she have ARVC? And epsilon waves are the classic manifestation of very advanced arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And they're rarely seen unless you have really advanced disease. And it's a, it's a terminal late deflection of the QRS complex in the anterior precordial leads. Yeah. Can you tell me about when, what was she doing when she had this sustained arrhythmia? Just sitting down, eating lunch. So it's not brought on by exercise. No. All right. So this is the sister, not the not the patient. This is the sister of the patient I initially presented to. Right. Who has no psoriasis or or hole in her head. Oh, so those biopsy. are good. Those are those are good questions. So she does indeed have long-term callus formation on her hands and feet that have been quite bothersome to her, but are not nearly severe as um, as they are in her sister. And she also does have curly hair. <laughs> back, back to you, Danny. <laughs> Wooly. <laughs> yeah, if you need a curly hair consult, uh, I'm your guy. <laughs> no, I, I, I have little to add to this case so far. I, other than that, like, as you start to accrue these, like, bits and pieces, I think what becomes, what becomes clear is like, okay, well, even if we did genetic testing and it was negative, there is clearly a genetic something or other linking some of these very specific symptoms between these two um these two sisters so i i think like i would i i don't think it would take me too long to decide that like i i probably need to touch base with a geneticist or a cardiac genetics fellow at harvard medical school or <laughs> someone that i know and i I'd, I'd, I'd certainly run the case by them and have them do a, a full consult because i think this is very quickly going to get um, way over my head. So I would do differently. I, I wouldn't do that because uh, they're very hard to find these cardiac genetic folks and even the ones at UBC, but let alone the ones at Harvard. But I mean, the, the finding that there is uh, dermatolo- there are dermatologic changes I w- raises the question of what's causing the dermatologic change. And so as was pointed out, we had a biopsy of the scalp, which is non-healing. So that, and in addition to these these findings in the palms, I don't, I can't remember if you said the soles. I wonder if there is some sort of infiltration or some sort of abnormal component to this dermatology that would be reflective in the cardiac muscle. I think so you're saying that you would review the, you'd go and review the pathology that was taken from the scalp first 
and see if that um, kind of gives you a diagnosis and see what other tests you can do on it before before doing anything else. I think so. I think it just, just because now we have a 12-year gap and uh, and we've got the same presentations, but now we have a different organ system because we didn't have any organ system. We had the skin before. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I, um, I like Danny's approach. And I say that because we're talking about a pretty serious arrhythmia here. And we're also getting out into the nether regions of like bread and butter medicine. Like this is not, I don't think that the etiology here, the problem is immediately well known to anyone in this conversation except for Thomas. And so this diagnosis is going to be made by someone who recognizes this pattern, you know, who puts these dermatologic and hair and whatever other manifestations in with the arrhythmia and says, oh, this is whatever. So I think using a phone a friend here early rather than me messing around with a 12-year-old biopsy sample is probably the approach that I would take. Right. So I think if I would, what I would say is I think you're both right in a way because... But but, but me and Danny are a little bit more right than yeah. there. <laughs> the reason I think you're both right yeah. is that everyone here now has the luxury of knowing what I presented in her sister. But how many physicians, even genetic, genetically oriented physicians, are going to ask a 26-year-old woman about her calluses and her sister's calluses on their hands when they present the emergency department with symptomatic sustained VT. So from a practical point of view, I think right now you guys are putting the pieces together for a genetic syndrome because you're sort of biased by the way that I presented initially. But I would say that the way that Barry approaches the case is probably the way that most people would because they wouldn't necessarily immediately recognize that connection. And that's really where the diagnostic challenge comes in this case is that is the ability to tie together seemingly unrelated things um, in patients who obviously have a blood connection, but uh, who will tell you what their major medical problems are if you ask them. And they would both tell you that one of their major medical problems is their dermatologic and uh, hair issues. I don't mean to be callous about it. <laughs> good. Okay, so I'll move Strike on and tell you a little record. bit more. So what the approach actually was when this was recognized and, and to be honest, if you guys typed in the things that I've told you so far into Google, the first thing that would come up is the diagnosis. So I don't think it's so much about what the diagnosis is, but sort of how you would go about approaching the next set of investigations. So I think you have two organ systems in two different people who are affected and you think they may have a common problem. What I would really probably do is I would do an extensive workup of both organ systems in both patients so that you can try to begin to see if you can tie those things together or not. So the other part of a family history, obviously, is asking in depth about everything else to do that might have a relation to the syndrome. And in, in cardiac genetics, the things we really care a lot about are obviously the, the parents, so the first degree relatives, any siblings and the children. And what you really want to know is any diagnoses of unexplained syncope, unexplained seizures, which could be a mimicker of, of arrhythmia, any uh, sudden deaths in the family that are unexplained. So there may be a story about Uncle Joe who drove off the road in the middle of the night for no reason and died. Um, and that may be that he just had an accident, but it may also be that he had a cardiac arrest or syncope behind the wheel. So we really try and get into those family stories about, unfortunately, about some of the tragic things that happened to really understand whether or not we can find the common link in the family. So uh, in taking the family history, we learned that uh, the girl's father is alive and well at age 50, really with no medical problems whatsoever. But the patient's mother actually has a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. So she was diagnosed actually three years prior to her daughter presenting with this sustained VT. She presented with palpitations and a positive troponin. She went on to receive an MRI, which showed mild biventricular failure. Uh, she had an ICD put in, which resulted in multiple shocks. Uh, and the diagnosis was not confirmed by biopsy, but she did have a PET scan, which showed active cardiac inflammation in the anteroseptal area of the LV. And so right now, she's actually on Sotolol, as well as high-dose corticosteroids, which has had some benefit in terms of reducing her rhythmic burden, and she's been able to return to a normal quality of life. And then I'll tell you a little bit about the dermatologic history. So as I told you, both daughters have the same uh, phenotype of, of this coarse, brittle hair, uh, the psoriasis on the hands and feet, and, and scaling of the scalp that's quite bothersome to them. 
And the other daughter doesn't have any known cardiac symptoms. And there's no one else in the family that really has anything obvious. The, the mom's mom uh, died at a relatively young age of, um, uh, in, in a unrelated accident. Um, and her father is alive and well at like the age of 80 with uh, like some chronic medical issues, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, but has had an echocardiogram and has no major obvious cardiac phenotype at 80 years old. So I'll stop again here and try to get a sense if anybody has any further ideas about workup or what might be going on. I think I've shot my bolt. So I have no, uh, I think uh, before I started adventuring into these various different areas, I think that uh, I'd look at the pathology. The only other, I guess, one thing that I would suggest recognizing that there is a genetic factor, but thinking that this may be a metabolic disease is considering uh, metabolic syndromes that could present this way. Anyone in particular you're, you're thinking of? No, you know, I guess uh, I really, yeah, no, I'd, I'd be saying, I'd just be throwing names out without any, uh, w- without any substance and probably names like, uh, you know, a town in South Africa and uh, a place I went in Saskatchewan. I mean, I just, their, their names. I have really, I think looking at, uh, at Google would probably give me a much better uh, sense of the, of names. <laughs> okay. Steph, what do you think? So the, the, s- Sister who had the arrhythmia, what what is what is her arrhythmia work up to date? Like, like it should in a young person, it should include a stress test. It should probably include an echocardiogram. She's had those things. Oh, perfect. So that's exactly what I think the next step is, and kind of what I'm looking to talk about. So perfect. So I'll tell you some of those investigations, and I'll also ask you guys to think about not only your level of confidence in the psoriasis diagnosis, but what is your level of confidence in the mother's diagnosis. And so I'll, I'll leave you with that as well uh, as I tell you the investigations for the daughter. So the daughter who has the cardiac phenotype underwent an echocardiogram, which was normal. Um, she also had an ECG that also showed slightly low voltages, but no other abnormalities, and an exercise stress test that showed several PVCs uh, during peak exercise that resolved with rest and were asymptomatic. Are there any other tests you guys think might be useful? I think she needs to see an electrophysiologist. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I'm not, I, I'm I, not kidding. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I would yeah, actually do. Absolutely. Like a young person with no presumed, no ischemic disease, um, who has a negative treadmill, maybe with some ventricular ectopy, but nothing sustained and a normal echo. Yeah. She gets an EP study. Like I would you do, uh, you know, let me be the devil's advocate. Would you do a coronary angiogram on this lady? I don't do coronary angiograms, Barry, but um, no. I know I, you don't. <laughs> um, would I ask for one? No, I don't think so. I mean, what? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Well, think she I, has an infarct pattern. She has a, um, a, she's a normal, normal ECG. Uh, no, I, I understand. She has a normal echo, so we can't explain her low voltage based on at least the echo findings. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't start with a, with a calf. I think I'd be more interested in a cardiac MRI, especially for mother. So, so to your point, Thomas, you're, you're, you're asking about um, how confident are we are in the mother's diagnosis of cardiac sarcoid, not confident at all. Like it, it is possible that every single person in the family has a weird thingy and they're all unrelated, but I, I love to, I prefer to live in a universe with more harmony in it where all these things do kind of fit into a, a puzzle. That's more fun for me. So I choose to believe that the cardiac sarcoid, especially if there was no other component to her sarcoidosis, no pulmonary involvement, no skin, no eye, um, et cetera, that, that perhaps what she had was some kind of in, infiltrative cardiomyopathy presumed to be sarcoid. And so I'd be interested in a cardiac MRI. And, and I, I really would definitely ask <laughs> cardiology or, or electrophysiology first about like the order of operations here. Like I'm not going to order random tests for this person, but, but that would be on my mind that cardiac disease in the mom, how is that diagnosed? And then what does that mean for the kids? Maybe a similar test would show similar things. You know, the other thing that I was just thinking, um, Danny, like, you know, we, we've, we've been talking a little bit about the podcast and what we're doing here and gotten some feedback about it. Part of it is this practical thing of like, what actually would you do? I think someone like this, Let's say she, you know, young woman referred for palpitations or syncope has sustained VT on 
a on a holter. So I would have ordered the holter, maybe even interpreted the holter, depending on where I am in the province. And at that point, I, I don't even think I would go on to get the Echo and put her on a treadmill myself. I think I would, at the very least, call my sort of local helpful electrophysiologist and just go over this with them and say, you know, my plan here is to do an echo and a stress test. What do you think about that preliminary plan? Um, and and go from there. It's a young person who's got a like a really serious problem. So I'm not sure I would even, I would go it alone, honestly. I totally, totally agree. I mean, who amongst us is going to say, here's a woman that has VT at whatever age, I mean, and, but certainly at the youngest of age and try to sort it out without some sort of understanding of where we're going. I, I, I would agree with you entirely. Yeah, I think that's the very safe, rational approach. I, I'll just put it out there that sustained VT is a life-threatening emergency that by and large requires admission to the hospital, especially if you're having symptoms, and to have a very careful assessment and workup. And, you know, your opinion can be a little bit different if the person already maybe has an ICD in, so, you know, they have some level of protection. But if they have no ICD and they're having sustained VT in the community that's symptomatic, that's a person who really is probably one of the highest risk people, depending on what they have, obviously. But it's someone I would I would bring into the hospital and put into telemetry right away. Uh, the question I have is, I, I reckon she was put on Sololol. It's a drug that I really don't like. I'd like to get others' responses to that choice. I don't have any... It's it's not it's a drug that in 15 years I've never started myself, but that you know I see experienced electrophysiologists prescribe. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's 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 I don't I don't have any strong feelings, but I'd like to know who started it and and whether that person is still following this patient. Yeah, I think that's well outside of my uh, jurisdiction. I, I just don't know, and there was probably a very precise reason why it was started, and that suggests that it's. Uh, like expertise that I just don't have. So no comment. Let me just jump into it by saying, I I think this was started for VT. I think it was started probably without, this is my thought, a complete understanding. And and it's so anecdotal. I have no evidence to support this, but the times that I've I've been involved with patients that have been on Sololol for these things have had as many problems from the Sololol as they've had from their, their underlying arrhythmia. So Tom, it's back to you. Sure. So Sotolol is generally a drug that we don't use as a first-line therapy for arrhythmias. It is has both beta-blocking properties and class 3 sodium channel-blocking properties. Sorry, uh, potassium channel-blocking properties. Uh, so it's kind of got a, a double effect. It's both a rate-lowering agent but also an antiarrhythmic. So people like it for that combination. But for that reason, it's usually used in patients who fail on you know, either a beta-blocker or a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel-blocker. And the main side effect that you really have to worry about is QT prolongation. So like all antiarrhythmics, it can be paradoxically proarrhythmic. So I would completely agree with everyone's opinion that I think unless you are an experienced cardiologist, it's not a drug that you will commonly encounter. And, and really actually to me just suggests that they had a lot of difficulty controlling the mother's arrhythmias in order for her to end up on that agent. So I'll just share with you the the experience I've had, and it's only these are two anecdotal cases, but both cases ended up with torsad as a result of sotolol. Yeah. So uh, normally, what we do with sotolol is we start it often in hospital hospital the first initial doses, uh, not always, but often, and then usually get an ECG um, a few times after starting it to make sure you don't see significant QT prolongation. Um, but for some patients, it is a very effective medication and one that they really rely on. But again, it's like any drug that you don't commonly encounter. You kind of have to know when to consider it. And often people are on their last line of options when they're trying Sotolol. So it's hard for me to be too judgmental of someone who starts it or doesn't start it because there really isn't a clear set of indications as to when you should say, okay, now I need Sotolol or now I need Amio or now I need this antiarrhythmic drug because once you get past the typical beta blockers, there's there's not a great deal of evidence that any of these agents are particularly effective. So I think at this point, the next thing I'd like to think a little bit about what is our illness script for cardiac sarcoidosis and how do we make it? And do we feel that the mother in this case has cardiac sarcoidosis? And can cardiac sarcoidosis ever be a familial syndrome? So the way I sort of think about this is cardiac sarcoidosis goes often hand in hand with extra cardiac sarcoidosis, which 
all of you are going to be much more familiar with. So I think it's important to kind of figure out how much do we believe this diagnosis. So first of all, does she have any extra cardiac sarcoidosis on her imaging, on biopsy, anything like that that will help us? And the classic manifestations of cardiac sarcoid are actually often bad ventricular arrhythmias out of proportion to the degree of LV dysfunction, as well as a decrease in your RV or LV ejection fraction. And perhaps most importantly is uh, conduction disease. So if you see a young person with early conduction disease, like third degree heart block, cardiac sarcoid should be high on your differentials because the, uh, the granulomas actually infiltrate the conduction system and can cause heart block. Um, and what I'll tell you is that she really has none of those manifestations. She doesn't have any known extra cardiac sarcoid. She doesn't have any conduction disease. And her diagnosis is made on PET scan, which is a very common way to make the diagnosis. Um, which shows metabolically active tissue within the myocardium. And I guess the last thing I'll say before I sort of open up for a bit more discussion is that familial cardiac sarcoid is a disease. Um, there are There is a genetic predisposition to it, and there are rare families where they can pass sarcoid on, and uh, they can get both, both non-cardiac and cardiac sarcoid. So at this point, I guess I'll ask you, what do you think of all of that? And um, you have now this young girl in front of you who has some form of uh, arrhythmic substrate, um, you're going to rely on your electrophysiologist to help make a diagnosis. But I guess the question for a general internal medicine focused podcast is, what do we think of sarcoidosis as the explanation in this family? It doesn't seem right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, uh, like there is genetic components to the, like there is heredity to sarcoid. You're teaching me that there's actually a specifically like a formal hereditary cardiac sarcoid, which is is new to me, but I still I, I'd have to like look at like well how common is that because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here and that does not explain the hair it doesn't explain the skin and those things feel like they are probably part of the overall syndrome so like the small remaining peds part of my brain would say like well that, that's an explanation but that's only an explanation for the heart. And uh, it, it doesn't answer the rest of the case. Uh, so I'll just clarify one thing that I said, Danny, so that there's no misunderstanding. So cardiac, all for, like sarcoidosis in general, has a hereditary basis. So if if your family member has sarcoid, you have a five times greater chance of getting sarcoid yourself. A totally unrelated to cardiac versus extra cardiac, unrelated to a specific gene. It's just like coronary artery disease, where you know, if you have a first degree relative, you're just at greater risk yourself. And I just, sorry, I just want to clarify that before I'm very honest. I mean, the only thing I would say is that, you no, know, you know, is that in everything that we do, we don't rely on a, uh, a surrogate. We try not to rely on a surrogate to make a diagnosis. And so we try to find, we try to go to the source with evidence and also with our investigations to confirm uh, or refute a diagnosis. And so we have no tissue here. We have an image. And so just that alone without anything else would suggest that this is compatible with, but not a diagnostic of. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the next thing that's done so that you have a little bit more information. So the daughter undergoes a PET scan now, the one with the cardiac phenotype. And the only thing that's written on the requisition is sustained VT, NYD. And the report comes back from radiology saying, consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis. So they were provided very little information and were very confident that the PET was consistent with sarcoidosis. Uh, and on the basis of that, she was given an ICD for secondary prevention after having sustained VT and started on a beta blocker and allowed to go home at that point. So with, with, without treating her cardiac sarcoid? Yes. No treatment for her cardiac sarcoid was started during that admission. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't so, I mean, seem reasonable. Yeah, that doesn't really compute. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't think it is cardiac sarcoid. But if it is, then cardiac sarcoid can be really bad, and and often does dictate the treatment. If someone has like pulmonary involvement, the pulmonary involvement, you know, often doesn't require the treatment. But if they're actually having infiltrative disease in the heart and conduction block, that does. And so I find that a little bit like that's a little bit out of step with the diagnosis that they've made. And I wonder what the conversations were there. I'm sure they thought that through, but uh, I find that a little unusual. 
Excellent. So Barry alluded to the fact that we don't have tissue. What do you guys think about anything else that you want to do? And I'm kind of leading you down something, but I want to talk about, about what the utility of that something is. I think that it has to be coordinated between like, I mean, we've been, we've been saying this kind of from the beginning, but I think that probably we do need tissue like Steph says, but I want to make sure that we get the highest yield tissue. So part of that is, is I think is partly related to a genetics consult. Like I think is, is cardiac tissue the best or do we want to get that um, skin biopsy? Maybe that's actually the best tissue um, for whatever genetic testing we're going to do. I don't know that. And I don't know what resource I would even read to know that. And so this would be like, this is a multidisciplinary discussion because an endomyocardial biopsy is, is no small thing. Yeah, I agree with Danny. I, I mean, uh, given the, the fact we need tissue, I would say in a lady that has VT as the presentation, how much irritation am I going to do by asking someone to biopsy this irritable myocardium already? So, and what's the yield even if we're able to do a successful biopsy? I think the easier tissue is the, is if we can do it, is to look at the previous biopsies and maybe go for the skin on the hands. Right. So the previous biopsy, unfortunately, is not available. It was done like quite remotely at a different center and no one was able to find it. I agree with your guys' assessment as to the utility of a biopsy. So I would say that a bio, a cardiac, I mean, every procedure that you don't have to have done yourself is routine. But I would say a cardiac biopsy in cardiology is a relatively routine procedure if you're doing an angiogram anyways. And they usually, you know, when they introduce the, the biopsy catheter through the catheter, uh, they, they biopsy the underfluoroscopy, the very thick part of the right ventricular septum. And so the risk of perforation is very low. I think we quote less than 1% chance. And often it is very helpful. But uh, I'll say that with a caveat that sarcoidosis is a patchy disease. So the yield of your cardiac biopsy is actually relatively low in the condition. So you expose the patient to potential risk with a small chance of getting an answer. And also the other thing is that the um, PET scan gives you a good sense of where the inflammation is occurring. And I told you, at least in the mom, that her antroseptum was predominantly affected, which would involve actually an LV biopsy, which we don't obviously commonly do because going on to the left side of the heart is much higher risk. So all of those factors need to be considered and really taking a biopsy of the right ventricular septum when there isn't a lot of um, FDG uptake probably has a relatively low yield. So I think what Danny suggested is a very uh, a, po- a point that's very near and dear to my heart, which is that when you start to deal with families who seem to have conditions that are similar or overlapping, sometimes the most useful thing to do is to get all of them in the same room together and to actually talk to them, examine them, look at them. And things often become much clearer than if you just have one patient in front of you and they're telling you about their relatives. So these three girls or uh, the mom and the and the two young uh, women who who I've talked about were brought into a genetic cardiology clinic together and they had striking findings so their hair was not woolly it was matted and clumped um their scalps were all uh, flaky and thick the palms and soles of their hands had deep fissures in them were extremely callous like like extremely calloused and at least one of them had totally uh, white cracked hitting nails um, that that were really, really striking and, and something you couldn't miss uh, just looking at the three of them together. And so it became very clear that there's something going on here that's that's all related. And I, I can't emphasize enough like how useful that experience actually was is just to see all of them together in the same room and and to be able to 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 see how profound that those similarities really were. So quite interestingly, uh, so these, these individuals were assessed and um, the one daughter who, uh, who only had the skin and, and uh, hair condition, within a few days of being seen at the cardiac clinic, actually developed severe chest pain. Um, oh, and uh, it wasn't relieved by nitroglycerin. She was taken to the emergency department. There were no clear exacerbating or alleviating features. Uh, her ECG was normal other than the fact that it showed sinus tachycardia. Her white blood cell count was raised at 14, uh, predominantly a lymphocytic picture. She had a normal D-dimer, but a high sensitivity troponin of 60, with normal being less than 15. 
and a CRP of 20 with normal being around one to two. She was put on telemetry. It was entirely normal for 24 hours. She had an echocardiogram repeated that was entirely normal. So I'll stop one last time here to get thoughts from the group about what they would like to do and what they think might be going on. When, when was this? Just recently? A few days after she was seen in the cardiology clinic with her mother and her sister. So, but is that in the last year, two years, five years? It's in the last year or so. Well, it's hard to escape the fact that these people that are shared shared genetics, shared a mother, the girls that shared the mother and the mother that shared the girls get together and suddenly one of them develops uh, these symptoms. And I guess given that situation, I'd wonder about COVID. <laughs> That's a good point in today's day and age. Um, well, that was actually, it's, that was, that, I, w- I will say that that, that, um, that was considered. So what do, you, what do you guys think the clinical diagnosis is in this patient? Forget about everything else that we've talked about so far. Like just based on what I told you, what do you think, what would you call this, this presentation? Bizarre. She's got a positive troponin and chest pain. So she's got acute coronary syndrome. Yeah. So what I would, I I mean, I guess I would say she's some kind of myocardial injury and you have to figure out what that myocardial injury is. So we talked about coronary angiograms, but the nice thing in today's day and age is that we don't have to do an invasive coronary angiogram on everybody. We have the option of doing coronary artery CT scanning. So it's a perfect uh, test for a young person who you think the likelihood of finding a, you know, atherosclerotic stenosis is low. Um, so she has a coronary CT scan, which is entirely normal. It was entirely normal, sir, did you say? Yeah, her coronary CT scan was entirely normal. Her echo is entirely normal. And her troponin is still ed- elevated at 50. I, I, I think, I, like, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, like, I still think that that warrants a cardiac MRI um, or PET scan, like either or, um, because I I think we're looking for inflammation, like cardio, cardiac inflammation, that's perhaps not so bad that it's causing dysfunction that you can see on an echo, but, but is still there. And, and that would sound very similar perhaps to maybe that was kind of how her mother presented. Um, Although that's but, that's uh, not that wouldn't be like the standard workup. A young person presents with chest pain, you know, borderline or 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 sort of slightly positive troponin and a negative coronary CT. She, she probably most of the time get a diagnosis of uh, pericarditis, like with maybe a little bit of myocarditis or something. I'm not sure that most patients who present like that would end up with a cardiac MRI. In this case, agreed. there's this other layer of you know, her family history is pretty weird. And so maybe that would prompt that line of investigation, but that wouldn't be typical, or at least wouldn't be typical of my practice. So I'm the champion of Occam. I think I've lived my whole life at the foot of Occam. Uh, a myocarditis, in, you know, I mean, if we're thinking about coming together, so infection is possible and autoimmune disease is possible. And so yeah, the development of a myocarditis at this point would raise this possibilities as something acquired. Perfect. So I totally agree. So the, di- the clinical diagnosis at this point is, is perimyocarditis or, or myocarditis. And um, myocarditis is a rare phenomenon. It's inflammation of the cardiac muscle that we don't always understand the cause. And the most common thing that's attributed to myocarditis is viral infection. But unfortunately, the majority of people with myocarditis actually have negative viral serology. So we really don't understand the pathophysiology of myocarditis well, but it associates with other autoimmune diseases. So I think in normal circumstances, we would we would actually, the guidelines do suggest for myocarditis, if it's an initial presentation, that you should do an MRI to try to figure out if you can identify a potential cause. Um, and people will also often do a rheumatologic uh, workup and a viral workup. But in the absence of you know systemic symptoms, the yield of that is actually relatively low. And most people just get better on their own. So, but because as Steph pointed out, her whole family history and everything that was going on, she got the whole nine yards in terms of investigations because there is a feeling that this is probably related to her familial syndrome. So she does have a cardiac MRI. It shows her EF is 50%. She has a small area of late gadolinium enhancement in the basal septum. And then she goes on to have a FDG PET scan, which shows metabolically active tissue in the same area of the late gadolinium enhancement. So at this point, we over the course of 20 years, have three family members who are all first-degree relatives who all have the same dermatologic condition and have all developed some type of cardiac phenotype. 
One of them seems to have myocarditis. One of them more has sustained VT. And then the other one has, you know, this initial diagnosis of sarcoidosis. So at this point, uh, you know, we're hitting kind of the 50 minute mark. And I'll just tell you what the diagnosis is, because I thought it was a really fascinating condition. And um, looking at the diagnostic journey that this family went through was very interesting, because it wasn't identified early that any of the skin manifestations could be related to the heart and vice versa. And that really um, uh, led to probably inadequate recognition and treatment of the conditions. So what I'm describing to you is a condition related to genetic mutation in the gene called desmoplakin. And desmoplakin is a cell-cell adhesion protein that holds your cells together. And like many tissues in the, or many genes in the body, it has tissue-specific expression. And it happens to express in both cardiac and skin tissue. And obviously, your skin tissue relates closely to your hair and your nails as well. And desmoplakin form helps form something called the desmosome, which is what holds all of your tissues together. And people who have desmoplakin variants actually have problems with their tissues essentially falling apart. And so it can therefore affect your, your skin, your hair, your heart, and even your teeth. So people with desmoplakin uh, mutations actually don't have as many teeth often. So they have abnormal dentition, and there have been cases described in the literature where the syndrome was first recognized by a dentist. And uh, what's interesting also is that there are diseases related to acquired problems with desmoplakin. Uh, so you can, in, uh, and Barry mentioned this very early in the podcast, which I think is very interesting, is that there are perineoplastic syndromes associated with desmoplakin. So you develop autoantibodies against desmoplakin, and it causes perineoplastic skin disorders specifically. And I don't think there's a connection with cardiac issues yet, but the important thing is, is that there is an acquired form of the disease as well, and it presents more with a uh, blistering condition. Um, and there's also a hypothesis that it plays a role in cancer as well, where people who have not necessarily full-blown mutations of desmoplakin, but some, some syndigonucleotide polymorphisms that lead to a, um, a decrease in cell expression can actually cause the propagation of metastatic cancer. So there's an excellent paper this year on desmoplakin-related cardiomyopathy published by Smith et al. in Circulation. It's a series of patients basically describing what the condition is because it's incredibly rare. So these patients have a constellation of RV and LV dysfunction, ventricular tachycardia, and actually recurrent myocarditis. So it's actually very rare to get myocarditis more than once in your life um, related to the run-of-the-mill causes of myocarditis, but people with desmoplakin uh, variants often have many episodes of myocarditis. And so you should suspect it in patients who have recurrent myocarditis, and in addition to all of the cutaneous features that I described. And one important thing is Cardiac inflammation on PET is cardiac inflammation. It doesn't necessarily mean you have sarcoid. It's just that sarcoidosis is the classic inflammatory cardiac condition. And so if you ask radiology to look at a PET with a lot of metabolically active tissue, they may immediately label it as sarcoidosis, but there is a narrow differential diagnosis for why you could have cardiac inflammation. And the last thing that I'll say is that, so this is normally a syndrome that's autosomal recessive, which means you have to get a variant from both sides, so your mother and your father. And it was first described in this pattern in Ecuador, um, and it's known as Carhaval syndrome, C-A-R-J-A-V-A-L, and it's the autosomal recessive form of the disease. But we actually have realized in the last couple of years only that it can also be an autosomal dominant disease. So you can get one mutation from one parent and manifest in the disorder. So we used to think that you had to, you know, often the situation was a consanguineous relationship. So first degree cousins marry or, or having a child together. Um, but that's not often a requirement anymore. So although it's really important to ask about that, it doesn't necessarily need to occur in order to have uh, the condition develop. So yeah, it was a super interesting case for me. I'm not sure if anybody else has any uh, points or questions around the case, uh, but it's really kind of interesting to hear about how all of you think about it. Sorry, and I missed how you made the diagnosis. Was it a, was it, how, how was the diagnosis made? So the diagnosis was made on genetic testing. Desmoplakin is one of the genes that appears on the standardly available commercial cardiomyopathy genetic panels. And so they automatically sequence it if you ask for cardiomyopathy genetic testing, and that's how the diagnosis was made. 
I see. And was there any, would there have been any utility in looking at the skin? Would that have informed us at all? So I actually looked at that before we're going to have a discussion because I thought you guys might ask me about that. Um, it seems from the rare cases that are published in the literature that the histology is relatively nonspecific. Um, and okay. also the cardiac histology is nonspecific. You can have like lymphocytic invasion, um, you know, edema, like things that um, are commonly mistaken for other processes. It's not specific to my knowledge. And I have one final uh, question. Recognizing this and, and using generic peri or prophylactic and, and therapeutic measures, is there any definitive treatment for it? Um, no, there is not. And, uh, you know, I work in a field where people are really excited about genetic therapy and modifying the genome in order to cure conditions like this. But desmoplakin is a really difficult condition to cure with gene therapy because it stems from not having enough of a protein. And most gene therapy is particularly useful for when you have too much of a therapy or too much of a gene and you can actually shut it down. But it's actually hard to turn on and make more of something that doesn't work well. Um, or, or that's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it. But there isn't really any clear molecular therapy on the horizon. But what we usually do is we don't know of anything that can help the dermatologic condition. It's usually just good skin care, but the cardiac condition we treat with normal LV enhancing and antiarrhythmic therapies um, and ICDs if people need them. And of course, if the cardiomyopathy progresses to the point that they have refractory arrhythmia or heart failure, they are eligible for cardiac transplantation. So what's like the lesson for like the average doc out there? I wonder if it's like just to kind of generally pay attention, like you're just having a look before you enter the room, you know, like stopping at the door, just the general inspection of the patient comes first before you do other physical exam. And I wonder if some of these, uh, like with this families, maybe when all of them are standing side by side, um, maybe it becomes obvious at that point. And when you see one at a time, it's not. But, but, you know, from what you're describing, it actually sounds like they had a particular look and perhaps if one was just kind of paying general attention to like, what does your gut say about how this patient looks? Like, is there something unusual that you're, that you're bumping up against here that, that should trigger you to just be like, all right, I'm going to type a couple of those things into Google and see if like anything comes up that I need to follow up on. Cause I think for this person, actually, like you said, Thomas, like if you had just put those things into Google, would have given you the answer right away. Um, that's a pretty powerful tool. And I don't think that that should be uh, like, we shouldn't forget that or, or be too proud to, uh, to look uh, to Google or, or elsewhere for those answers and to ask for help early. Well, yeah. I, I think I'd say the other thing I'd say that, you know, we used to before Google, we would go to the stacks and sit there for half an hour, one hour, two hours, three hours, trying to find a Venn diagram that would actually do what Google's doing. But uh, the lesson I've learned from this is probably I'll forget the name of the genetic syndrome and the, the gene abnormality pretty quickly, but I won't forget to take a family history and someone who's young and to maybe look at the relatives, especially if there's any consideration, to see if that's at all informative. Even if I never knew the name of this thing, whatever it is, and prior to the identification of this gene abnormality, I'm sure someone would say, there's something really wrong in this family. Yeah, I think all of those points are kind of what I was hoping people would get from the case, not so much the actual diagnosis, but I think it's about understanding, being able to understand that some tissues, for example, have a shared pathophysiology or a shared developmental process, and that just because they're two different organ systems, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily unrelated. And I think it comes down to doing a really good family history and maybe seeing people together in a family at the same time if you think that they have a unifying diagnosis and and not uh, not overlooking something on people's past medical history that's really striking. So, you know, psoriasis isn't that interesting, but if you saw this patient's psoriasis, you would say, wow, that's that's quite a bit different than what I would think. And then when you see her sibling with the same psoriasis, you say, wow, that's really, really surprising they both have it. But I think as a cardiologist, you don't notice those things anymore. And I, it's interesting because Barry and I were just talking before this podcast about kind of the law, a little bit of the lost art of the, of the specialist who still has some knowledge of, of general medicine and how to approach these things. And 
you all wanted to send this patient early to a you know highly subspecialized person, but sometimes I think it may actually be easier for a, a more of a generalist to actually recognize some of the striking abnormalities in the family and 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 come up with some hypotheses and start typing stuff into Google than it is for an electrophysiologist who has nothing to do with the skin on their mind at all. Great, great case. And that means a lot of us have skin in the game. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Thomas. That was a, that's really wild. You diagnosed three people uh, at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, uh, it's by the time they get it to a genetic arrhythmia cardiomyopathy clinic, there is actually a relatively narrow list of possibilities. So uh, it's actually an easier job in those kind of places than it is in, in a general medical clinic. So I, I would, you know, if there was an equivalently rare and uncommon disease in any other subspecialty of medicine, I would have no idea either. But it's really all about the family history and trying to make sure that you have a broad mind when it comes to really atypical dramatic presentations of seemingly unrelated things. Well, well, that definitely confirms what I always thought, which is that cardiac genetics is uh, is uh, a breeze. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. It was really nice to have you back. And uh, when you're back in town, uh, I hope that uh, you'll you'll come and do more uh, more cases with us. Yeah, it would be my pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, boy, you guys, this was uh, wow. That was a doozy. <laughs> I actually think that uh, I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot. I always do. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, we will be back in a few weeks with uh, another podcast. So stay tuned. Thanks, everybody.